Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Gotta Look Sharp edition. A little old school Joe Jackson there as my broadcast partner Dave Lapham joins me to discuss the final week of voluntary offseason practices. We'll discuss Tuesday's Open to the Media workout, and Lap will share some of the names of so-called under-the-radar guys that have caught his eye over the past few weeks. One of the Bengals' draft picks that is expected to play a significant role as a rookie is second-rounder Drew Sample, the tight end out of Washington. We'll hear from 34-year-old James Casey, the Bengals' new tight ends coach, on why he is excited to have Sample on the roster. And in this week's Fun Facts interview, I'll talk to Bengals quarterbacks coach Alex Van Pelt about a wide variety of topics ranging from breaking Dan Marino's passing records at Pitt to singing on stage with Hank Williams Jr. All of that is straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest invention since the Snap-E mousetrap. In the late 1800s, Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, quote, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door, unquote. I don't know what the path to the door looks like at the Kness Company, but I've become a fan of the Snap-E mousetrap. Unlike the traditional old wooden trap, they're easy to set, with virtually no chance of catching your own finger, and they're reusable. So, if you need to take care of a mouse, or mice, you can learn more at kness.com. That's K-N-E-S-S. Now let's get to football, as I bring in my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Lap, Tuesday's practice was a fun one to watch for a few reasons. Number one, the weather conditions could yeah. not have been better, which is always nice. But secondly, they did some stuff that was uh, designed to be competitive between offense and defense. They did kind of a no-huddle, two-minute drill type of thing, except they put 115 on the clock instead of two minutes. They did more red zone like they did last week, and then they ended practice by having the offense try to drive out from deep from their own territory, and it seemed like both sides were kind of keeping score. Yeah, they were into it, and uh, situational football but it was it was competitive and uh, of course defense was complaining that the offensive oriented head coach was given first downs when he shouldn't have and they had officials out there as well so um, you know Zach as I could after the officials a few times I mean the coaches were into it uh, the players were into it I, I thought it was it was great it was it was fun to watch and and you'll hear around the league how competitive some of these practices get you know, guys uh, tell me how uh, down in New Orleans with Drew Brees, man, it, it's like game day on Wednesday. Tom Brady, same thing. I mean, he and Teddy Bruschi, it was legendary. Offense, defense competing, you know. And so that, that just raises the bar and raises the whole ship, you know, when, when it comes to game day on Sunday. The, the idea is to make, make game day almost easy. It's almost like a little break because you work so hard and so competitively on your big work days that, you know, Sunday rolls around and it's like it's all going to fall into place and it's going to be a, a walk, not a walk in the park, but it'll be a, an easier, uh, easier dynamic for you. The other thing that Zach's doing, a lot of coaches have, uh, have done uh, over the years, you know, that I've been associated with football and Paul Gunther did this most recently he's calling players up to the grease board and and having them uh, design you know entire offensive plays now in in the idea is not just tunnel vision what I'm doing but know the whole package of of the play everybody's assignment so you'll understand why you're doing it and when you're going to be doing certain things and not just 
I'm doing this no matter what. And, and when defense is making adjustments and you have to maybe make other calls, you understand why you're making those calls because it not only affects what you're doing, you understand that it's going to affect things on both sides of you. And so the mental aspect of it and, and uh, comprehending the entire big picture, not just the little picture, it's going to, I think, pay big dividends, dividends to the football team on all phases of it. These OTAs are voluntary. Cordy Glenn was not in attendance on Tuesday. Additionally, John Ross didn't practice. He was on a stationary bike uh, early in the practice. Trey Hopkins stepped in as the starting left guard, and Alex Erickson had a huge day, partly uh, because he was getting a lot of those snaps that John Ross would normally get. Alex Erickson made a bunch of plays, a bunch of back shoulder catches. I mean, that dude, we've talked about it so many times. He's just a football player. But let's start with a couple of guys, you know, in those positions. And the fans obviously know Alex Erickson, what he's about, and he's made big contributions. But Trey Hopkins, he was playing really well, you know. And then um, the guy, I think this coaching staff has him at left guard in Cordy Glenn's absence because this guy is so smart. And being intelligent allows him to play both guards, center, or either tackle. So I think the fact that uh, the coaches feel so comfortable with him understanding the offense, you know, he got plugged in at that left guard position. And everybody knows, you know, what he did, uh, you know, when Billy Price was injured and he stepped in center position and played well. I mean, it's almost like, wow, this might be his best position. So one thing that coaches, I remember Paul Brown saying when, you know, I remember after a couple of drafts, coach, why did we take this guy in the third round? Because he's smart. Dave, we cannot have enough good, smart football players. They don't have to be all pro superstars physically, but I want guys that know what the hell they're doing. And that's Trey Hopkins. You know, he's not going to wow you with, you know, uh, Hall of Fame type strength or whatever uh, as an offensive lineman, but the dude is very, very good and extremely intelligent. So I think Trey Hopkins deserves some kudos. And let's hit the receiver position while you mentioned that, Dan. You know, Erickson is, 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 is what he is. I mean, he's he's big time, I think, in terms of always overachieving. You know, you never worry about Alex Erickson not giving you 110%, as the saying goes. But Stanley Morgan's impressed me. I think he's the best of the of the guys. You know, it, they didn't, it didn't work out. I think if they had drafted a receiver second or third round, they probably would have gotten a receiver. But as it got into the later rounds, they didn't have one high enough in their board to make that selection. Stanley Morgan, they signed as a, as a free agent. And the reason that he was available as a free agent, he doesn't have world-class speed. He's not going to be a guy like, whoa, look at the physical abilities of this guy. But he's another one that's in, very intelligent. He's got position versatility already. They're playing him in a bunch of different uh, positions. Um, all-time leading receiver at, at Nebraska. And people are, oh, Nebraska, you know, they run the ball. But they've been throwing the ball here lately, and he's he's the best they've had there. And Zach Taylor, you know, trusts that, those coaches and the contacts he has at that school. And, and uh, this kid, you know, is highly recommended. And you look at him on tape, he runs great routes. He understands where in zones to, you know, settle into a zone and, and get open for the quarterback or run through a zone. You know, if you have to get open for the quarterback, he understands all those concepts. So I'm impressed with Stanley Morgan. I, I think he's got a better than even chance to make the football team. I really do. When you talked about Paul Brown drafting smart guys back in the day, it made me think of a story I read sometime in the last two or three weeks in the Boston Globe about how much of a premium Bill Belichick puts on drafting and or acquiring smart guys. And you look at it, Dan, look at the position versatility he's had with different guys. You know, Mike Vrabel, 
defensive end, linebacker, tight end offensively. You know, he's kind of like the Sam Hubbard of the uh, of the Patriots. Uh, so it, it, there's there's a litany. There's a long, long list of guys that, and in the way uh, Bill Belichick approaches a game almost on a series-by-series series basis, they may change. Mm-hmm. They may change everything. And if you don't have guys that can do it, you have, to, you have to, quote, dumb it down to your dumbest guy on the field. So if you have five guys that understand calculus but six that don't, you're not going to be able to, you know, have that sophisticated a game plan. But if they all understand calculus, now you got something. you got something special, and you're ahead of the game because it's like, oh, my gosh, they're morphing into this now. They're doing that. Oh, how many things are they going to do? You have to have some intelligence to be able to do that. Zach Taylor can certainly speak to that based on the Super Bowl last year where Bill Belichick went into the game saying we are not going to give up the play-action deep ball and played a defense that basically they had not played during the regular season or first few rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, they were a man team. You know, they played like 75-80% man. They played 75-80% zone in the, in the Super Bowl. And they basically said, you know, the two weeks of preparation that week you had out in the West Coast, the week you had in Atlanta, yeah, scrub that. You guys are going to have to adjust because we're not doing that. We're not, we're not showing you anything that you can take advantage of with those big chunk plays. All right, let's talk about some other guys that maybe are a little bit under the radar that caught your eye at practice today. I know one of them was one of last year's draft picks who got hurt, defensive lineman Andrew Brown. Yeah, Dan, you, you look at him. Physically, he's got what it takes to play in the league. I'm not saying, you know, a perennial Pro Bowl guy. But he's got some heavy hands, some explosiveness. When you see him go through bag drills, he pops those bad boys. And he's, he's got – I mean, he was the best high school player in the state of Virginia. You know, people are like, oh, yeah, well, boy, there were a bunch of powerhouses in Virginia. But this kid this kid was a really good player, and he had a lot of big-time offers, state of Virginia. Um, and, and I think – He's got the skill set physically. Now, is, is he going to be able to put it all together? He's kind of a tweener, you know, uh, when, you, when you look at him. Uh, he's listed at uh, 6'3", 296 pounds. Is that big enough to play defensive tackle? Is it, is it perfect, you know, dimensions for a defensive end? But all, all I know is physically he's got some capabilities, and it would be interested if he can take that next step mentally and, uh, and understand everything that Lou Anarumo is putting in out there because that defense is looking pretty good. I mean, they're not playing soft cover two anymore and letting people free release off the line of scrimmage. They're getting after them. They're blitzing. They're getting after the quarterback. And they're playing tight coverage. They're getting up there pressing people, and, and uh, it, it looks it looks pretty good. I felt overall the defense won the day. The offense had their moments and had plays in uh, in today's workout, but on a snap by snap basis, if you evaluate it as an impartial uh, evaluator. You'd have to give the nod to the defense. I thought that was especially true in the no huddle, two-minute drill again. They actually put 115 on the clock. But in that portion of the practice, I thought the defense really shone. I agree, Dan. I mean, I think they're well put together. I think I think the scheme is very sound. And the players are really responding to it. I think, I think they appreciate that, you know, again, it, it, it's not – you don't have to uh, study volumes and volumes of an encyclopedia, you know, and, and have – three answers for everything and if they do this you better have another answer for that it's like you know <laughs> you, you, this this whole game is you either punch or counter punch you don't want to always be counter punching everything the offense does to, to you you want to be, just have a few things and make them counter punch and I think that's the track that the defense is on we mentioned that Hopkins stepped in as the starting left guard or the number one left guard with uh, Cordy Glenn not in attendance today and Clint Bowling still on the uh, rehab field. But Christian Westerman also caught your eye today. Yeah, I mean, I think physically he's got it all. 
I mean, he is a thumper now. He's very, very strong. Uh, he has a good pad level. He bends at the hips and not at the uh, at, at the knees. He's not a knee bender. And he, when he strikes you, you're struck. The thing is, again, uh, you, you, it's hard to deal with it if, if he's only got 40% of it, 40, 50% of it. You have to have at least 75, 80% of it, you know, from a mental standpoint at this stage or the coaches lose confidence. I mean, coaches want to lay, lay it on the line with guys that they feel like are going to be able to get. It doesn't matter how big, strong, and powerful you are if you're blocking the wrong guy or going the wrong way. So he just has to keep working on that part of his game. And, uh, again, you know, feeling is that's why Trey Hopkins is probably not as physical, uh, physically talented as Westerman, but mentally he's way ahead of the game on him. We've mentioned on previous podcasts that uh, it's almost an all-star team on the rehab field right now with guys like uh, A.J. Green, Tyler Eifert, etc. We were keeping an eye on Carl Lawson and Ryan Glasgow uh, today, and both of those guys look like they're moving really well as they look to come back from their injuries. I agree. You know, I think it, it's probably not going to be right at the beginning of training camp, but at some point, maybe to play in that third preseason game where you know, you're going to be taking snaps with, with pretty good players for a good period of the game. They can roll a lot of guys in there when they're still guys are going to be NFL players on the field. So you, you might target that preseason game number three is when some of those guys are going to maybe, uh, maybe hit it and, and, and really test it. And, and that's the thing. You can, you can feel really good in the rehab field. And, you know, but I remember when I just had scopes to my knee. You know, it's like mentally you have to hit hit the ground, get caught in a pile. Something has to happen where is it really okay? And once you get past that little stage of it, that little block, once you you know you go live contact and, and you've hit the battlefield and, and you come out unscathed, now you're cooking with gas. So I do think that getting uh, snaps in the preseason for both of those guys at some point is going to be you know paramount to get done, but I'm not sure it's going to be in the first couple of weeks. Any other under-the-radar type guys catch your eye today? Well, you know, you look at the tight end position, Dan um, – I, you know, Seaton Carter, I thought was playing really well, and he had the shoulder injury. Yeah, I, I, I like that guy. I think he can block at the end of the line of scrimmage. And I think he can catch the football. Jordan Franks last year. I mean, he. The thing about Jordan Franks, remember that little wheel route that he ran after the fake? He motioned across the backfield and he caught a ball down the football field. When you have a tight end that can run, and you have that size speed ratio advantage, you know, Jordan Franks will he be able to take another step? So you know, I'm, I'm basically trying to. You know, hit hit guys at, uh, at at almost every position group. Maybe we haven't talked about it a lot, and the fans haven't really heard about it a lot. But you know, they may make the jump from from one year to the next. And let, let's go to the linebacker position, Dan. You know, um, with with Jermaine Pratt having the hamstring injury that slowed him a little bit. Deshaun Davis has gotten a lot of snaps, and I like him. I can see why you know guys were people were fearful maybe a little bit because he's not a real big guy. But, man, he carries a lot of weight in that lower body, and he plays with a very low pad level, and he's smart. I mean, you know, he can call signals for you. He understands the defense. He flies around the football. He's a, he's a playmaker. He's a productive guy. So, you know, I think, I think he's going he's gonna to be a factor, you know, on the football team as well. In the secondary, Trayvon Henderson, remember how well he was playing before he had his knee injury? You look at that dude's legs. I mean, he's stout now. He's put together. You know, Trayvon Henderson, come back, and can he – 
compete at the level he was competing at, maybe even more in, uh, at, at the safety position. So, I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of guys to keep an eye on. There's no question about it. Ryan Finley, I think, is at the quarterback spot, is, is starting to, you know, understand things a little bit better. And he's making plays both in and out of the pocket. I think he's getting a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident. And you can see why he was drafted, you know, in the fourth round. So there's, uh, there's quite a few guys to, to keep track of during the course of this, uh, of this thing for sure. Last thing, we are in the uh, tunnel of Paul Brown Stadium, kind of in between the Bengals locker room and the entrance to the playing field. Several golf carts have gone rolling by. Uh, Mike Brown moments ago went by in a golf cart. Do we need to have some of these people teach you how to drive a golf cart, Dave Lapham? <laughs> Man, unbelievable, Dan. I, 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 tried to, uh, I tried to pass on, a, on a, uh, a cart path that was too narrow. And front wheel, front right wheel went off the cart path. And it was just a total downhill, like 45-degree decline. And I was, oh, am I going to be able to keep this up there? And the second the back wheel went off, and I was like, oh, it's like slow motion start to, I rolled it, rolled the bad boy. But a little bit of a hip issue, a little hitching to get along with the hip. But just a little scratch on the arm. And the the cart survived because I used it in the afternoon round as well. But, man, I'm retiring from evil Knievel of the golf carts. (laughs) Next time we golf, I'm driving, pal. I got you. I got you, coach. (laughs) Thankfully, Lap wasn't hurt, and that wasn't the only good news to come out of the golf tournament he co-hosts with former teammate and roommate Ken Anderson. This year's event raised more than $200,000 for the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati and the Ken Anderson Alliance, which provides opportunities for adults with developmental disabilities. Kudos to two of the all-time great Bengals and people for continuing to make a difference in the community well after their playing careers. When the Bengals drafted tight end Drew Sample in the second round this year, number 52 overall after moving back 10 spots to pick up extra 4th and 6th round picks from Denver, some of the draft gurus suggested that he would have been available later. We'll never know. But if OTA practices are any indication, Sample will help the Bengals right away. He was considered to be the best blocking tight end in the draft, and he's caught everything thrown his way in the practices that have been open to the media. The Bengals have a new tight ends coach this year in James Casey. He spent seven years playing in the NFL and was still active as recently as 2015. I spoke to Casey about the addition of Drew Sample. You played the position. Tell me what you like about this guy. He's, uh, he's got great, great technique, great feet, great base about how he's blocking. He's, you, know, you watch a lot of these college guys, and it's, I think it's rare, and I'm not you know, extremely experienced. I haven't been doing it for 20 years, but when I watched all the guys that are coming out this year, he was one guy that just stood out to me as being like a sound football player with really good technique that you don't, you don't feel like you've got to come in and like teach him and coach him up on a whole bunch of different things. You can more like jump into it and get him learning the scheme and kind of of course, you're going to try to get him better on some of the techniques and get him more physical and all those things. But he was he was a polished player and he played with great effort and great technique, and that's what you're looking for. For our tight ends, we're looking for smart guys, and he's extremely intelligent. We're looking for tough guys. He's a really tough guy. He's played a lot of football, and then we're looking for guys that got really quick feet So because we're going to do a lot of lateral stuff with our offense, and he fits all those molds. What kind of interaction did you have with him personally? I uh, got to, you know, really most of us at the combine, and once we left the combine, everybody knew we loved him. We got to, you know, sit in a meeting. You know, we kind of had like a formal meeting with him with the whole staff, and he was extremely intelligent, one of the most impressive guys that I've been around as far as like his intelligence and 
asking him questions. It was almost like I could just see him. I don't know if he wants to do this in the future, but even as young as he is, I could see him wanting to be a coach one day. He was, you know, any question you ask him about the offense that they ran at, at Washington, he knew everything about it. He knew what everybody was doing. He knew how to articulate it. He was confident. He was a bright-eyed guy. He wasn't low energy at all. He was. I think the guys in our locker room are going to love him. He's going to fit in our, in our group really well because we already got a lot of really good tight ends and a lot of great guys in our room. And it's great to add another great guy. So you know he's just going to fit in right away. And there's going to be no issues in our room about you know any kind of bad people or guys that aren't loving football. Like he's going to. He was very very impressive. And of course, I, you probably could tell by how I'm talking. I'm extremely excited, and especially you know early on, just getting started coaching here, like to get a guy. That I can get as a young guy and kind of get him, you know, kind of put my stamp on him and help him develop. With the trade down of 10 spots, were you kind of you know, biting your nails, hoping we'd still be there at 52? I was. I was very nervous about it, knowing that we had the, we had him rated high. And then, uh, and you know, as you travel around, you go to all the pro days and you go to the combine, you talk to other other tight end coaches you know, around the, around the league. You get a you get a sense of how certain guys feel about certain guys, how they talk to them, and. I, you know, I have no doubt that a lot of tight end coaches and a lot of teams around the NFL had this guy rated really high. And I know media-wise, he might not have been like the top tight end guy, but the guys that watched the ball and watched the film, I think everybody that did that know that this guy's a really good player. And time, time's got to tell. You got to come in here. It's got to go in and work and go prove it. And to me, as a coach, I tell those guys, you know, you got to, you got to make it undeniable. You know, you got to go out there and practice so hard that it's undeniable how good you are. And we got to, we got to put you on the field. And you got to. You got to be so good they can't ignore you. Basically, you know, my, you know, guys. T- I tell my guys in my room, like, you got to be so good that they can't ignore you. you they, they, they have to put you on the field, and you have to go. You gonna, you're going to produce just because how well you practice and how well you compete. If Tyler Eifert can stay healthy, the trio of Eifert, C.J. Uzama, and Drew Sample would give the Bengals a formidable tight end group. Now, time for this week's fun facts interview. As we get to know a second-year member of the Bengals coaching staff who's had quite a history as a player and coach. Time for some fun facts with Bengals quarterbacks coach Alex Van Pelt, a native of Pittsburgh, a former star with the Pittsburgh Panthers. But you played high school football in Texas, correct? Describe how that came about. Yeah, that was awkward. I kind of, uh, my parents had divorced early on, and I was living with my dad in a small town in West Virginia. And I had started uh, there for three years through my junior year. I happened to have a, a best friend that was a senior who was a way better athlete than I was, better football, basketball, baseball player, and he did not get recruited at all, and it kind of woke me up a little bit. Um, so my mom had moved to San Antonio, Texas, and uh, there was a, a situation where they didn't have a starting quarterback returning. So I took a chance and transferred halfway through my junior year and uh, ended up starting my senior year of high school football down there and got a scholarship back to Pittsburgh. So those are pre-internet days. How did you even find out that there was a high school there that needed a QB? Well, my mom was kind of uh, pulling strings, uh, talking to the coach, just getting a feel for what the situation would be and if it was something that uh, would interest me. And I was was concerned if I didn't maybe move on to a bigger area, I wouldn't have a chance to play in, in college. And uh, rolled the dice, and it, it worked out for the best. Doing fun facts with Alex Van Pelt. It certainly did. You came back home to the Pittsburgh area, wound up playing for Pitt, as I mentioned. Started for four years. It must have been crazy to start as a true freshman at a place like Pitt. Yeah, it was interesting. I had a couple quarterbacks that were ahead of me on the depth chart that uh, one had transferred and one didn't make grades. So all of a sudden I came in the spring as a starter. And uh, that was when Paul Hackett um, 
came in as the offensive coordinator. And, uh, you know, he, he and I really, we meshed for those four years, and I learned a lot of football from him and know him a lot. He's really a, a coaching mentor to me still to this day. Pitt's had some great quarterbacks, first and foremost, Dan Marino. But when you look in the all-time record book, the all-time leader in passing yards is Alex Van Pelt. Yeah, I, I think I threw it about 5,000 more times than he did. So I think the average, it may not have averaged out as high. But, uh, yeah, that's one I'm pretty proud of. Uh, and uh, I tease Dan when I see him. So. <laughs> so after starting for four years at Pitt, you were drafted by the Steelers in 1993 and went to training camp with Pittsburgh under Bill Cower. What was it like to be drafted by your hometown team? It was great. It really was. The family was excited. My wife's from Pittsburgh and her family as well. So we were we were excited for the opportunity to stay in town. Um, didn't make the most of the opportunities, though. I didn't make it through camp. but got cut at camp and uh, sat out that year until uh, midway through the season. And I ended up going. Paul Hackett had left at the time to Kansas City as their offensive coordinator. And Joe Montana pulls a hamstring. So I knew the system. Mm-hmm. So I got the call. I got to go out and, uh, and dress for three games. Um, and then when he was healthy, I was released and then re-signed again the next year. What stands out about even being around Joe Montana? <clears throat> I'd say the biggest thing is his note-taking hmm. uh, by far. I mean, that guy, it didn't matter how many times you installed a base concept that he's heard for 15 years, he would write down every detail on the paper. And that, that struck me. If he's doing it, I better do it. And so I still to this day... I have a little quote up here. You know, you can't see it, but that's all the story is all about that and Joe taking notes. So that's a big, the biggest thing I took from Joe. We're doing fun facts with Alex Van Pelt. He was not the only Hall of Fame quarterback you are around because you spent most of your NFL career with the Buffalo Bills. And early in your tenure there, it was the final couple of seasons of Jim Kelly's NFL career. Yeah, and that was a great experience. I mean, Jim is such a such a gracious guy. I mean, he when I walked in the in the building for the first time, I was immediately included in him and his group of the quarterbacks, and I thought that was really cool. Um, you know, he was one of the greatest leader I've been around. Um, he knew when to push buttons. He knew when to jump guys. He knew when to hug guys. And uh, he held everybody at a high standard and very accountable, and that spread through the team. I think that was a great experience for me to see how a veteran guy actually runs the team, and he really did. Doug Flutie is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but he's in the College Hall of Fame and the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and you're around Doug as well in Buffalo. Yeah, Doug's an exciting player, obviously. I mean, the, the, the energy he brings uh, into the stadium each week. I grew up um, a West Virginia fan, and I was at the, the Mountaineer uh, Boston College game that uh, the West Virginia beat him that year. So I've, I've been watching Doug for a long time, so I had to get a chance to, to, you know, to be in the same room with him and pick his brain. That was pretty cool, too. What was Marv Levy like? Oh, Marv, Marv was the best. I always tell the story that Marv would be the only man that in a team meeting could uh, quote a 14th century Scottish poet and somehow make it relate and all the guys would understand it. You know, he was a genius. Um, the way he handled those teams and all those personalities on those teams, uh, he couldn't have done a better job. So I grew up in Lakewood, New York, which is a little bit south of Buffalo, and you were extremely popular with Buffalo Bills fans well, uh, I was a little short and probably a little overweight for the position, so I think a lot of those t- body types uh, related to me. Um, I kind of come from a blue-collar background, so I think I kind of fit in there with the, with the community as well. And I actually had a radio show. It was kind of a spoof on the popular morning radio rock station, and uh, I would just say anything funny just to get a laugh. And I think uh, I, I acquired a lot of listeners and followers at that time. It was totally slapstick. None of it was serious, but... Uh, I think a combination of all those things and, and uh, being out in the community. I was a big part of the community there. I tried to do as much as I could, um, you know, whether it be juvenile diabetes or in a food bank or anything to stay, stay visible and, and active in the community. 
you got into a real broadcasting career after your playing career was finished. You were the color commentator with the great John Murphy on Buffalo Bills broadcast, but didn't stick with it. Did you just miss being one of the guys in the locker room preparing for games and, and game day? And that was really it. You know, when I retired from football, my thought process is, well, I'm gonna, I want to give broadcasting a, a shot. And if I don't feel like this is what I want to do, I want to get into coaching. At the time, I said I wanted to be John Madden or John Gruden. So I knew it was going to be one or the other. I wanted to be the best at it. I went through the first year of doing the radio. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, but I really missed being in those meetings and knowing the why. I could talk about the football all day and what happened and, you know, and who's responsibility for that gap and all that. That was easy. But the, uh, I related it to watching your friends open up Christmas presents from outside the window. Hmm. I wanted to get back into the window inside. We're visiting with Alex Van Pelt. Much of your NFL coaching career was spent in Green Bay with the Packers, working with Aaron Rodgers. What's the most remarkable thing you ever saw Aaron Rodgers do? Well, there's many. Um, to me, probably the biggest one would be the playoff game against the Dallas Cowboys. It's third and 20. I think there's 10 seconds left to go in the game. Most teams were tied up. Most teams probably run the ball and take it to overtime. Aaron gets in the huddle, designs a protection that we've rarely ever used to talk of, you know, talks about, talks the guys through the protection and three routes that we had never run. Wow. He, he draws up in the dirt on that final play and hits Jared Cook on the sideline after a great scramble. To me, I was like, well, what was that play? <laughs> well, no, I just told him to do this, this, and this, and I told the protection to do this, and it worked perfectly, and I won us that game. There was a stretch there in Green Bay where you had a beard and head coach Mike McCarthy had a beard. And you bore a striking resemblance to each other. Were there strange instances where you were confused for him? A hundred times. <laughs> uh, you know, referees would come over and shake my hand before the game, and I'd, I'd stop him about halfway over and say, "Nope, I'm not Mike. I'm Alex." Oh, sorry. Uh, coach, you know, fans would yell down, "Come on, Mike!" You know, so it's a playoff beard, so there's no you had no chance to shave it off until it was all over. So we had to keep the beards on. I always just tell people. My legs are a little thicker than his. So if we had on shorts, that would be about the way you could tell. (laughs) So this is your second year with the Bengals, working with Andy Dalton and the other Bengals quarterbacks. What, if anything, surprised you about Andy when you started working with him? Just his mechanics. I thought, first off the bat, I'd not seen many guys throw with the mechanics. I mean, his his mechanics, his fundamentals are very, very sound, as as sound as anybody's, really. And uh, the knowledge of the game the, and that and the vision of the field. I mean, he's, got, he's been doing it for a long time. Here's a guy that, that has seen a lot of different looks, and rarely does he get fooled on the football field. So his experience of, of seeing defense, you know, combined with his perfect fundamentals, I was very excited to get to work with him. All right. One more fun fact for Alex Van Pelt. Tell me about the time you sang on stage with Hank Williams, Jr. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a wild one. I was uh, in Kansas City. We were flying back from uh, River Falls, Wisconsin, back to Kansas City. Training camp had just ended. And uh, Derek Thomas, uh, the great outside linebacker, was on the flight and came back and asked if I liked country music. Of course I did. I said, I'll pick you up at the hotel. We're going to go see Hank Jr. Little did I know they're from the same hometown in Alabama and great friends. So I'm thinking, where are we going to get these tickets? You know, what are we? So DT drives right around, right through, waves at all the security guys in Wichita, drives right back and pulls into the arena, gets out by the tour bus, and the manager's there, and Hank's wife was there. We walked directly up on stage. It was myself, Troy Ridgely, who was a Notre Dame defensive lineman. That was my roommate at the time, and DT and Hank. And we're singing one whisk, good whiskey, good love, and good women. And he's passing the microphone around in front of like 12,000 people in this arena. 
And uh, it was a great night. Got to uh, go to dinner with them afterwards and, and spend some time with them. But uh, just goes to say what kind of guy Derek Thomas is. Here I was, a second-year player, third, fourth-string quarterback, but he knew I liked country music and invited me anyway. So you've played in an NFL game in front of 80,000 and sung on stage in front of 14,000. Which is more nerve-wracking? Oh, definitely the 80,000, because I'm a good singer. <laughs> well, do you care to share? <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's completely a joke. Yeah, 80,000 screaming fans on the road. It's tougher. Are you ready for some football? That's, that's the extent of my hank. This was fun. Absolutely. Yeah, enjoyed visiting with you. Best of luck this year. Thank you very much. My thanks to this week's guests, and that's going to do it for this week's podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a minute, please give it a rating or leave a comment. Five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast. <laughs>